Second Samuel chapter six. <clears throat> For three months, David's mind has been fastened on the death of a man named Uzzah. He had grown up in the house of Abinadab. He and his brother Ahio had grown up with the ark in their home. It had been there for probably 70 years. And now, they want to move the ark 20 kilometers from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem, what is now called the city of David. David has been the king for seven years. And he wants to move the ark to honor the Lord. I'm sorry, the ark of God. I'm trying to get out of the habit of saying the word ark because the Bible almost always calls it the ark of God. And when David goes to make that journey, he brings in 2 Samuel 6 verse 1, 30,000 men. First Chronicles gives us three chapters to cover what 2 Samuel covers in one chapter. 1 Chronicles 13, then 15 and 16. Skip chapter 14. It's 1 Chronicles chapter 13 is the story of Uzzah, the whole chapter. So it's about twice as long as it is here in 2 Samuel. And then the second half of 2 Samuel 6, what we're covering this morning, is covered in 1 Chronicles with 72 verses. So this morning we have in front of us 12 verses. But that same 12 verses is expanded to 72 in the book of 1 Chronicles. So we're going to be going there just now to 1 Chronicles. David has to go 20 kilometers. He goes about 2 kilometers. And suddenly the oxen stumble. The ark slips. And Uzzah reaches up his hand and touches the ark. Because he thought, my hand is cleaner than dirt. And that was his error. The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 6, verse 8, that David was angry with God because of what God did. The next verse said David was terrified. And that makes sense, wouldn't you be? I can't move it. So they take it just off the road and they leave it in the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And David travels. The parade is broken up. The festivities are broken up. The holiday has turned into a funeral. And he marches 18 kilometers home in disbelief. In fear, shaken in his confidence. And this story happens three months later. It's the second attempt to move the ark. And imagine how important this is. <clears throat> three full chapters in First Chronicles are given to the moving of the ark. One full chapter in Second Samuel means four chapters of your Bible are given to this movement of the ark. If you add up all the verses, it's longer than whole books of the New Testament. Why is this so important? Well, this passage is recorded to show, as at other times, the right honor and respect that God deserves. In this church, and in any godly church, their goal, our goal, is to find the kind of fear and reverence that God deserves and then give Him that kind. We are not interested in making you happy or making you smile. We are very interested in finding what He wants, what He demands, what he requires, and then giving him exactly that. 
And we know that there are a group of people that will smile when they can do that. Because God is actively saving his people. And our Lord said what? Blessed, 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 blessed eight times. It could be translated happinesses. It's in the plural. Happinesses, happinesses. So you see, when we come to God and give him what he wants, his reward is to give us back overflowing happiness. But we don't do what the world does and begin with the goal of happiness. We don't come and say, what does faith want? I'll find out what she wants and then I'll give it to her. If I started that way, this church would be far too small to hold the people. But if we start with saying, what does he require? And working backward, or working forward, that's forward, the other way is backward. If we start with what God requires, then the blessings and joy and peace will come down. And David tries to do that in this chapter. This account, like the first account, is going to compare David and another man. Earlier on, 1 Samuel compared David and Saul, right? David, the man filled with the Spirit. Saul, the man whom the Spirit of God left. 1 Samuel 30, David is compared with all of his men. All of his men grumble when the Philistines come in. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. 2 Samuel 1, we covered it three weeks ago. David is compared with that Amalekite. The Amalekite was a man always looking for himself. How can I get an advantage here? How can I step on someone else to put myself to the top? And David was a man of principle. And here, in fact, in a chapter we didn't cover just three chapters ago, 2 Samuel 3, David is compared to Joab. Joab kills Abner, the captain of the host of Saul, whom David had given immunity to. David said, no one will hurt that man. And Joab kills him. And David is angry and says, who can handle men like you? Joab, who was the leader of the army. And here again, we have a comparison. This time, it's personal between a man and his wife. Let's look at the story. I have two points in the sermon today. It's the return of the ark. And then it's Michael's response. David returns the ark... He does seven things. So those are, I'm going to have seven subpoints. If you're taking notes, you can write, David returns the ark, and then one, two, three, four, five, down to seven. And then there's going to be a number two, or a second major heading, and that's Michael opposes him, and there's five things that she does. So seven and five, if you want to follow along. But through it all, there's one main point. Here it is, and some of you are going to find your case in this main point. Here it is. Even though you serve God with all your heart, and even though you pour out time and money, and even though you take risks to serve God, and even though you do right and are godly and obey the Bible, some people will still oppose you. That's the message. You will still be hurt. You will still lose your job. You will still be insulted. You will still be rejected. You will still be mocked, laughed at, or met with, what's worse, mockery or apathy? At least with mockery, someone gives you attention. But with apathy, it's as if they don't even acknowledge your breathing. What's the opposite of love? Hatred or apathy? You're going to receive all of those responses if you love the Lord. That's the story. Let's see how it unfolds. Chapter 6, verse 12. It was told to King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he has because of the ark of God. Now, we have to do this. I don't tend to do this very much when, when I'm preaching or teaching, but we have to go to First Chronicles because it opens this up so much. Go to First Chronicles 15. 1 Chronicles 15. We'll come back to 2 Samuel when we deal with Michael. But for David, let's go to 1 Chronicles 15. 
as you're going there, I'll simply tell you that 1 Chronicles is the story of David. 1 Chronicles is the story of David's life. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are summarized in the book called 1 Chronicles. And in 1 Chronicles 15.1, David made houses in his own city in Jerusalem. And he did what in verse 1? 1 Chronicles 15 verse 1. He made a tent for the ark of God. This shows that he had faith that the ark eventually would come to Jerusalem because remember in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, Uzzah dies. So Uzzah's already dead. David goes home and while waiting, he builds a tent saying, I know one day the ark will come. It also costs money and time. I want to encourage you after you fail to try again. David was not the man who said, Well, a bad thing happened, so forget it. Some people are like that, aren't they? If you talk to them, maybe, they're, maybe you're at a party and one person is being too loud, and you go and say, Hey, you're being a little bit loud. Okay, fine, I won't say anything. No, I'm not saying, I mean, talk. I'm just, you're being, we, we, were, we couldn't even hear ourselves. No, 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 I won't even talk. Oh, now you're trying to punish us. I, I didn't say don't talk. Calm down just a little. Years ago in Mashamba in 2004, before I was married, I stayed in Mashamba for a while. And one night, a bar, a bottle store was playing music very loud. And it blasted about 375 steps. I noticed that many because I counted it. From the house I was staying at, I got up in, at night and walked counting every step. Before electricity, they only had electricity at the bar because he could pay all the money because he had all this money there. And he got electricity, came just to his place, nowhere else in the village. I counted the steps, 375, to get to his place. And I said, hey, music. just turn the music down a little. I even said it just a little. And, ah, they got angry and shouted, hey, what are you doing? The next day, they called elders together from the village. They said, get that white man. So they went to Engomani's house, and they got me, and they, went, and they gave me an ultimatum. They said, say it right here. You do not love us. You hate us. Or say, I'm sorry. Now, now that's very interesting. David doesn't do that kind of thing. He fails with Uzzah. But he doesn't say, fine then. You want the ark? You move the ark. I tried. I, I made this parade and then look what you did. I tried to honor you. He doesn't do that. He's got more maturity and grace than that. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Don't give up if you fail. Continue to try because if you serve the Lord, it's not in vain. And then look at this in verse 2. David said, No one should carry the ark of God except who? That's after three months. David, how did you know that no one should carry the ark of God except the Levites? Look down at verse number 13. David's talking again to the Levites. Because you did not at the first carry the ark of God. The Lord our God made a breach upon us. Because we did not seek him after the right process. According to the rule the ESV says. Look at verse 15. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders with the staves thereon as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. How did they know that that was the word of the Lord? Because in the three months' time that David had left Uzzah, they searched the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they found number 7, verse 9, that says, don't put the ark on a cart. And they found the verse in Deuteronomy that says, carry the ark on rods. They found those verses. 
We commonly want to substitute sincerity for truth. There is no substitute of sincerity for truth. Well, I just feel like God would have me do this. I really felt like the Lord was leading me. I want to know what does the Bible say? Years ago when I was in the U.S. as a pastor, a man told me, I've been married to my wife for 22 years, but I feel that the Lord is leading me to divorce her. To which I said, what about, what about the clear teachings in Matthew 19? Well, I don't know about that. I just feel like the Lord is leading me. Are you saying the Lord is leading you to contradict the Bible? God never leads us against the Bible. How many people have I spoken to who go to a church where a woman is the pastor? And they say, well, the Lord led me. The Lord called me. What can you do if the Lord calls me? This week, I saw Joyce Myers, the famous American public speaker in the name of religion, who said, God called me. What can I do? God doesn't call contrary to the Bible. David lost the life of Uzzah because he didn't read. Bad reading brings early funerals. David's inability to read the Bible cost the life of people. Or to put it in another way, proper interpretation saves lives. Listen to this verse from the New Testament. 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul the Apostle, writing to young Timothy, says this. Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Because in doing this, you will save yourself and the ones who hear you. Timothy, pay attention to what you teach. Because if you pay attention to your teaching, by doing that, you will save not only yourself, but other people. Salvation comes by truth. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. There is no answered prayer outside of truth. There is no blessing from God outside of truth. That's why we take time to prepare sermons. That's why pastors should learn Greek and Hebrew. That's why they should put their money into books, not flat screen TVs. They have to invest in the Bible so that they can teach accurately. Many pastors cannot do that because they have never done what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself Approved by God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed because he cuts straight the word of God. That word cut straight is is what a a tailor would use when he's sewing. Have you ever tried to sew a shirt? Have you ever tried to make something? If you don't cut it right according to the pattern, it's not going to look right. Paul tells Timothy, cut it straight. If you leave from this town and go to another place above all else, find a church that takes truth seriously. Language is a secondary concern. I still remember the man who was baptized in Elam, who did not speak Tsonga, who said to me, I'll be glad to learn Tsonga if I can find a church that teaches the truth. How many of us say to ourselves, well, I speak this language, let me go there. I'm more comfortable here with people who are like me. If you love the truth, then the thing that matters most is do other people love the truth, not what color, what degree of melanin they have. I want to know, do you love the truth? This is a teaching of Sola Scriptura. David sought the Bible. He searched the scripture. This is the cardinal difference between success and failure. Many people who call themselves Christians and many men and women who call themselves pastors. They give out flippant, 
trite slogans. Like, this is the year of no more limits. And foolish things like that. They're not concerned with interpreting the Bible. They're concerned with attracting people after the flesh. David tried that once and Uzzah's in the grave because of it. Now he says, why don't we try something different? Like actually reading the Bible and doing what it says. Do not expect answers to prayer if you are not carefully obeying the Bible. Do not expect to see true conversions. When I say true conversions, I mean people whose minds are set on spiritual things. I mean people who love the gospel. I mean people who are willing to sacrifice money for a black man in Zimbabwe they don't know. Or someone who's evangelizing in Durban. Or someone who's evangelizing in China. I don't even know you, but I'm going to sacrifice my money because I want the gospel to go to them. Those are marks of true conversion. Not, oh, this one comes to church and, and he's singing in the worship team. Oh, you should hear this one pray. Oh, he just gives me goose flesh when he prays. Those aren't the marks of true conversion, but a mind set on the Spirit are marks of true conversion. And we only get that when we follow Scripture explicitly. Do not expect to see visions of God's glory unless you have obedience to God's Word. Remember Lot's wife. She was told by God, don't look back. And she did. Ask Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who were told, you offer this incense. You have a bowl and you put the incense in it and you start letting it on fire and you can smell the scent. You don't use that one. You do use this one. They use the ones they weren't allowed to. And the Bible says in Leviticus 10 verse 2, Fire came down from God out of heaven and consumed them. They did not obey. All religious actions must be based on accurate exegesis. The word exegesis means what you pull out of the Bible. Eisegesis means your own thoughts that you try to push into the Bible. Exegesis means what the text actually says. Don't talk to me of other authorities. This is the authority. And David learned the hard way what the true authority was. Look at verse 3, 1 Chronicles 15.3. David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem. He gets everyone together. Look at verse 16. He gets the musical instruments back and the singers in verse 16. He gets choirs together. In chapter 16, verse 7, we're going to see he writes poetry. He writes several psalms just for this day, for this national holiday. He's very confident now. He sends out messengers to gather people from all over the country because he knows We've got the Bible on our side now. I'm not afraid. Yeah, but David, be careful. You know what happened last time? We wouldn't want another national fiasco. There will be no fiasco because I'm standing on the Bible. (laughs) David had confidence in the word of God. In verse 26, look at verse 26. 1 Chronicles 15, 26. 1 Chronicles 15, 26. What does he do in verse 26? It came to pass when God helped the Levites who bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bullocks and seven rams. That's a lot of money. In 2 Samuel 6 it says, after every six steps, probably as they're entering Jerusalem, not all 18 kilometers, but as they're entering Jerusalem, they take six steps And they offer a burnt sacrifice. Look at chapter 16, verse 3. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 3. He gave to all Israel, everyone in Israel, both man and woman, to everyone. Three times there he says everyone got it. A piece of bread, 
a piece of meat. And then your Bible will have something different. Every translation will have something different for the last piece. Because the Hebrew word means a sweet thing. So it's difficult to translate this sweet thing. Some will say dates, a cake of figs, a a bottle of wine. It was a treat. Last year when we had the marriage conference, it was about 43 rand per plate. Let's say that David could get it at 43 rand. 43 rand times 30,000 people. It's over 1.2 million that he pays out of his pocket. On top of the sacrifices, on top of the tent, on top of canceling the day work, on top of the musical instruments, on top of the choir. And we're going to see in in what's coming up just now, David is about to pay for a full-time music ministry. All professionals. He's going to pay for them. First time in the history of the Bible. Full-time musicians are employed by David. That is amazingly expensive. Mozart doesn't come cheap. He's going to pay for all of this. He sacrifices. He doesn't care if it's costly. He is devoted to the Lord, his God. The expense for all of these items would have been extraordinary. Look down at chapter 16, verse 7. Then on that day, David, now depending on your translation, it will say, David first delivered into the hand, or first gave into the hand, or it will say, then on that day, David delivered first this psalm. If you have the King James or the New King James, or the Net Bible, it will say, then on that day, David delivered first this psalm. And then what happens is a psalm. If you have the ESV or the NASB or the NIV, it will say, then on that day, David first gave up to the singers. So does the first describe what David gave or how David gave it? I think it's saying this psalm, David wrote the psalm and gave this first psalm. Why? Because First Chronicles, the entire book, is the story of David's life. There is not a significant story, not one significant story, about another person in the entire book. There's not a lengthy section about anyone else. Yes, there are lists of names, but there are no lengthy stories. There might be a verse, Michael despised David, but even there, David's in that verse. The entire book of 1 Chronicles deals with David. Secondly, phrases inside these psalms. For example, in verse... In verse 29, there's the phrase, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, or as some translations will say, in beautiful clothing. That's a phrase that only David uses in other psalms. For example, Psalm 29, that is explicitly called a psalm of David. So there are phrases in these psalms that are only used by David. Why does that matter? Because there are three psalms in in this Section 1st Chronicles 16, verse 9, down to verse 36. There are three psalms in there. Psalm 105, Psalm 106, and Psalm 96. And each of those three psalms doesn't have the title. If you go to the book of Psalms and look at Psalm 105, 106, and 96, it doesn't say a psalm of David. So we don't know who wrote it until now. We do in 1st Chronicles. David wrote these, and he gave them up. And why does that matter? Because it's one more demonstration. If you have ever tried to write poetry, you know you can't write good poetry. You certainly can't write poetry that lasts 3,000 years and applies to millions of people around the world and is translated multiple times. You can't write good poetry in a moment. You can't do it in the halftime show while, while the chiefs are taking a break. You need time to dedicate to meditation and prayer. David gave time to meditation and prayer. And he offered up not only his singing, not only his dancing, not only his money, not only his administration, not only his name and reputation, not only his time to study the Bible. He offered his time to compose works of literature just for this holiday. Friends, you know that we don't talk about money very much at this church. We talk about money about as often as the Bible does. 
But I think this story is a great time to say, does your giving reflect David's devotion? If Jesus loved you as much money as you gave to him, how much would he love you? David says here, money, time, none of this matters. I'll give it all to God, to the ark of God. And I wonder, what about you? What about me? David devotes all that he has to the Lord. David's example is amazing. Are you like him? Do your greatest expenses of time and money have a religious goal? Do you save up your money? I know you save up your money to buy the car or to start this business. Do you save up your money thinking, we've been talking at church about how Wastemore needs a well. And we know he's struggling. Wastemore Saturday is the man we're trying to get a well for. We know he's struggling. Now, Seth had said he wants to be able to get it by next August, August 2020. When we have our next missions conference, I'd like to be able to give him what we're going to need, probably 60,000 Rand. I'd like to give Waste more 60,000 Rand from this church and get him a borehole. What if you planned and said, let me see if I can speed that up and we can get him the borehole in June? That's, that's the point that David's example teaches us here. But there's a second person in this story. And the reason I'm not preaching today from 1 Chronicles, I'm actually preaching from 2 Samuel, even though I'm referencing it, because now I want to ask you, go back to 2 Samuel 6. Go back, go back, go back. To 2 Samuel 6. Because those details that I just read you from 1 Chronicles are not recorded in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is discussing David's actions and then Michael's response. Michael opposes opposes David's love for God in at least five ways. So I showed you the seven ways that David served God. Now let me give you five ways that Michael opposed true devotion. Seven and five. Then at the end, I'm going to ask you, compare yourself. Which one are you more like? More like the seven or more like the five? Number one, look at 2 Samuel 6, verse 16. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window. Wait a minute. You don't look through windows unless you're inside a building, right? David's obviously outside the building. You can't look at someone outside. You can't look at someone through a window when they are outside unless you are where? But we already learned that all Israel went with David, right? And we learned that he gave loaf of bread, meat, and a cake of figs to the men and the... So there were women at this place. I didn't read to you all the times, but it says about five times in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. It says all Israel, all the people, everyone, all the men and the women, from one end of Israel to the other. He's calling people from all around. But Michael, who has no child, could not even come out of the house. Not even when you come near to Jerusalem, when you're going six steps and offering, six steps and offering. I mean, you've got to hear them. They're two kilometers away. They're they're 500 meters away and they're coming. It's going on for an hour or two, Michael. You can't, oh, you have enough strength to look out and see it, but you can't even walk out and join them? I, I know you've got some problems and issues with David, but can't you rejoice that the Ark of Jehovah is coming back? First point. She could not even be bothered to attend the celebration. It was too much to be put out. Maybe she had her TV show. Maybe she had a meeting with her friends. Maybe she had she was 
distracted or tired, or maybe she made up another chore that she had to do in the place. She stayed home watching out windows. We know she wasn't sick because what we're going to find out just now. So don't say, well, maybe she was sick. We know she wasn't, and I'll prove that to you just now. But what does she do in verse 16? First of all, she does not go out. That's number one. She does not join everyone to worship Jehovah. Number two, when she looks at David, she does not say, Oh, I don't think that was the right thing, David. She does not say, I know you're trying and you're sincere, but that's not the way to do it. What word does it say? It's the same in almost all translations. It says she despised him. The Hebrew word, she was filled with anger, hatred. She looks at her husband, the king, the man who fought 200 Philistines to win her 10 or 12 or 20 years ago. He paid all this money to win her. He took risks for her. She saved his life and she loved him at one time. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says, Michael loved David. But something's changed. When David came back, he fought to get her back. Back to his house. Something's changed. Something's twisted. Do you know this about people that they change? I still remember the man telling me in the first pastorate that I held in the U.S. He said, my wife's different. She was the same for 10 years, but now she's just totally different. Something's happening. She's not the same woman that she was. Number one, I say, well, obviously. Do you think you haven't changed? You've changed too, man. People change. And apart from the Bible and the people of God and prayer and the means of grace, we're all going to change for the worse. Michael changed for the worse because she wasn't actively involved in the means of grace. You're going to fall down too if you're not actively reading, praying, memorizing, meeting, talking, hearing the word of God. She despised David. Paul the Apostle summarizes the role of a wife in Ephesians 5.33 and it says this. Let the wife see to it that she reverence her husband. That's the old English word, but it's good. We've, we've lost, if I just say the wife needs to respect her husband, that's almost watered down. The wife needs to show reverence to her husband. Michael had forgotten that. She had forgotten that Sarah was honored because she called Abraham Lord. In our day of egalitarianism, where we are just waiting for the first woman president of America, where we rejoice because Margaret Thatcher, as the Iron Lady, was the president or the prime minister of England, where we are eager for the time when a woman would be president of South Africa, when we talk about, oh, there's all this tension and we just need to lift up women, we need to remember the Bible says there are roles that cannot be changed. The man has to love her as Christ loved the church. He has to lead her, teach her, and wash her with the water of the word. She has to, in response, reverence him. You are fighting against reality. You are kicking a boulder with your bare toes to try to change the world. That's the way God made it. I have a book on my shelf called Experiments Against Reality. Enough said. You can read the book or just read the title. Experiments Against Reality. That's what our world is doing. I know this is the way God made it, but let me just try it my own way. It will never work. That book, by the way, is written by a very thoughtful Catholic philosopher. Why is it that Catholics seem to understand the way the world works and, 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 and we, holding the truth of the five solas, struggle? May we, may we plunder the Egyptians and take those jewels. Boys, I want to see a godly, reformed, Baptist, philosopher, scholar 
Michael despises David in her heart. It's irrational hatred. Because she had previously loved him. And it reminds us that good people today might change into monsters tomorrow. Unless grace will stop it. Number three. Look at verse 20. Chapter 6 verse 20. David returns to bless his household. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. David's returning. He had walked how many kilometers? It was 20, but he'd already gone 2 kilometers 3 months earlier. So it's 20 kilometers or so. He's already gone 20 kilometers. And as he's entering Jerusalem, every 6 steps, he stops to offer a sacrifice. How long would it take you to walk 18 kilometers? How many hours? How, many, how long would it take you? How much energy would you expend if you are leaping and dancing as Michael saw him? How much time and energy would it take you if you're in charge of 30,000 people feeding them all? How much stress and weight would be on your shoulders if you were thinking of the ark of God when God just killed a man because you didn't handle things right? How do you think David felt as he walks home? Well, we know how he felt because verse 20 says it. He came home with one goal. What does it say in verse 20? What's his goal in verse 20? He came home to bring the same blessings to his family who couldn't be bothered to go out and meet him. He comes home saying, I just have grace. I've just got grace for you. I'm exhausted. I've poured out everything. I've been planning this. I've been studying. Physically, I'm exhausted. Emotionally and mentally, I'm exhausted. And let me come to you who couldn't come to me. And I'm going to come with grace in my hand. And verse 20 shows us she was not sick. Michael, the daughter of Saul, did what? In verse 20. What does she do? What is it? She came out. Sick people don't come out. I think this is very important because it's one thing to be angry with your husband... And wait till he walks in the door. And you're just going to keep your tongue. But then the minute he jabs at you, then you just, the, the, the dam breaks. That's one thing. That's wrong. But it's worse to say, he's not even going to get out of his bucky. I'm going to meet him in the driveway. I'm going to make, the gate's not even fully opened. And I'm there at him saying, what were you doing? She takes initiative for all the wrong things. David's tired and exhausted and he's joyful thinking of his family. She doesn't hold her tongue and she can't even control her feet. James tells us, if you can control your tongue, you can master anything. She was so weak that even her feet got out of control. She speaks without measuring her words. She speaks without wisdom. She speaks without prayer. She speaks without respect. Look at verse 20. She asks a question. It's a rhetorical question. Which just shows that she had put some time and thought into this. Into mocking this man. How glorious was the king. She uses the title there to mock him. You think you're so high. You think you're so wonderful. But look what you are. Look what happened to you. Verse 20. How glorious were you, immodest today. Probably referring to the fact that David had put on a cloth tunic rather than his royal robes. It might be as if a a president came out in work pants and a work suit rather than wearing his suit and tie. I know today there's the EFF that makes their motto by wearing work suit, worker suits, but but imagine maybe 20 years ago, anywhere in the world, a politician would have certain clothes to wear. And then imagine that he comes and says, I'm wearing, I'm wearing these. That's, that's what Michael was saying here. You don't put on the right clothes. You have the clothes to wear. You go and dress immodestly, shamelessly. You just want to be a spectacle so all the girls look and say, oh, oh, there's, there's the king. You just want to be seen. She impugns his motives. How often do we do that? Don't we do that? We say no one can judge motives, but then we do the same thing and we judge others' motives. 
By the way, the book of 1 Corinthians says that we can judge people's motives sometimes if we do it biblically. So study 1 Corinthians to know how to do it biblically. But here Michael does judge his motives and she doesn't have a good reason. But David is not a half man. David is not a man who shaves his legs. Although I know some people do that for cycling. David is a man who says, I'm the leader of this home. God has chosen me to lead this home. And in verse 21, he responds to her. He doesn't back down. He doesn't say, oh, honey, what's the problem? He says, it was before the Lord, Jehovah, who chose me before your father. Before all your father's house. That means all your brothers, Michael. He appointed me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. And it's because of that, God has put me in this place. Brothers, men, where are the godly men who will lead their homes? How many times have women spoken to me and said, I would like to do this or this, but my husband. Would to God that husbands would try to be going 120 down the road. And, and the wife says, couldn't we just maybe go 90? Okay, that, that's kind of the biblical role. The wife is prudent. She's watching out. And the man's saying, let's go, let's go. Sadly, too often, the wife says, I think that's a little too fast. I'm sorry, the husband is saying, that's a little too fast. Let's just, in fact, let's pull over here to rest stop for a while. I heard recently someone said, someone said they were taking, a man told me this, he was taking a break from church. He claims to be a Christian, of course. Oh, I just have to take a break from church. Really? Do you want God to take a break from him, his grace pouring out on you? Are you going to take a break from your sin as well? Are you just going to, during this break from church, I promise I'm not going to have, there won't be any sin. Where are the men like David? We need godly men to recognize that life is hard and there is opposition, but they will not buy temporary peace with an eternal compromise. I'm not going to say, okay, fine, just that it won't be angry in my home, just it won't be tense, all right, I'll soften up. And ladies, even though I'm mentioning this about men, this can go for you as well. Let your heart and your devotion boil over like David's did, because there is Esther in the Bible, whose devotion did not flag. There are godly women all through Scripture, like Sarah, who obeyed David even when she thought it might cost her life. I'm sorry, who obeyed Abraham even when she thought it might cost her life. There are godly women in church history, like Mary Slessor, who's called the king of the cannibals. She went to Zanzibar, an island off East Africa, a Scottish missionary. The Scottish Presbyterian Church didn't want to send Mary Slessor to go to Zanzibar because she didn't have a husband. And she said, apparently the men aren't man enough. She cut her long hair very short because she said, it's just taking too much time to keep it nice. This kind of devotion is what we need. And I want you to remember the words of our Lord in Matthew 10. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own house. Expect it. Expect that your son or your grandmother, your wife or your husband, expect that your uncle or maybe a close church member will have either subtle or open disregard and disrespect for your love for God. It happened here with David and Michael. Prepare yourself to be forewarned as to be forearmed. 
The wise man knows the nature of humanity. Alexander Pope, the proper study of mankind is man. Now, he was a humanist, saying that in a foolish way, as if, ah, let's forget the Bible and study mankind. Let's just see what we can come up with on our own. But Alexander Pope did have a hint of grace, a hint of wisdom there, when he said the proper study of mankind is man. He meant by that, or we can take from that, let us understand human nature. Human nature is this. If you love the Lord Jesus, expect someone in the family to be unhappy with it. It's in my family. Expect it to be in yours. Michael nurses this estranged relationship with her husband until her death. Look at verse 23. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. The man who wrote this book is putting that in there to put a full picture on Michael. David is merciful and ready to forgive. He forgives Shimei, who curses him just a few years later. David forgives Mephibosheth, Jonathan, Saul. David does not want to put the sons of Saul to death until the Gibeonites come and say, he's broken the covenant. And David reluctantly puts them to death. David forgives over and over. He doesn't lift up his hand against Saul. He's ready to respect and love Saul. David would have been ready to forgive Michael. The estrangement here as the last line of the chapter is included by the author of this book to show Michael didn't ever change. That chip is going to stay on my shoulder until my funeral. Oh, you think you can be strong, David? You haven't even seen a strong woman yet. You think that's strength? Every day you see me in this house, you're going to remember who's stronger. And now she lives in shame through all history. Brothers and sisters, sinners are all naturally opposed to God and his worship. They will look for all kinds of ways to get out of it. They will look for tricky ways to be apathetic towards it. And you must be prepared. Who are you like? Are you more like Michael? Or are you more like David? Let's close in prayer.